my name's Tom Walker. Welcome to That'll Be The Day. In this podcast, I'm going to be talking to a visually impaired disability campaigner about accessibility difficulties he experienced at the Eden Project and his wider views on equality. But before we hear from Alan Davies, if you like the music at the start of this podcast, it's a track called That'll Be The Day by the Liverpool band The Vow. And as always at the end of my podcasts, I'll be featuring a track by the band. To find out which one it is, stay tuned. Now, when I read a post on social media by Alan Davies, who's totally blind, about the problems he experienced at the Eden Project, I was keen to find out more. Alan is a well-known disability campaigner, and I suspected he'd have plenty to say, both about the access problems at the project and, more generally, on the question of what is equality. And let's just say Alan didn't let me down. And hopefully joining me now on the other end of this Zoom call is Alan Davies. Alan, how's it going? I'm doing well, thank you, Tom. Thank you for inviting me to join you on the podcast. You're welcome. Perhaps we ought to... uh tell people purely for the purposes of transparency that we've known each other for many years including at what was Worcester College for the Blind. That's right where we first met um, as long ago as uh, 1980 I think you were uh, I think you were part of the group that gave me the bumps on my 17th birthday in November 1980 so yes I uh, I remember you well Son. Well let me apologise to you. <laughs> and- also, maybe owing you an apology is the Eden Project, where I gather you had a bit of a problem. So perhaps you could talk us through what happened there. Yeah, sure. Um, myself and my partner uh, were down in Cornwall. We decided to go to the Eden Project because we both have an interest in green issues. And I uh, went on their website to look at their accessibility provision, because as most people listening to the podcast will know, most organisations now have an accessibility section. Uh, and when I turned up on the day, I did ask the receptionist, do you have any kind of audio guide, audio tour? And she said no. And, and when we were walking around, it felt not very accessible to somebody with a visual impairment. I mean, my partner, who's fully sighted, said that the signage wasn't that great anyway. And they, they had made something of a, of a sensory garden, but um, we couldn't find a sensory garden. So... We left a bit disappointed, just disappointed in general, but specifically around my access needs. So I emailed them um, subsequent to it. And to be fair, they came back uh, really quickly. They, they, they recognised it was an issue. As it is, they actually do do quite a lot for people with a visual impairment. And they, they will, if you contact them in advance, they will set up specific tours for you so you can get a specific guide if you have VI. Um, but the point was, they didn't say any of that on their website. If they'd have said all that on their website, I'd have asked them. And apparently there is an audio tour as well, so, which, again, I didn't know about. But they said it was on the website. So so and I did say to them, look, that's all great. You just need to to make sure people know these things on the website. For people who don't know the Eden yeah. Project, give yeah. us a little idea of what it's like and what you didn't get when you were there. So the Eden Project is, is, it's been going about 20, 25 years, I think, and it's basically, it's a conservation project. It's an attempt to, to show people different um, types of conversa- conversation, uh, conser- conservation and plants and things. So it's, it's a huge ex-clay mine, clay pit. So as you go down into it, it's a long walk down into a slope, but it's a huge cauldron, basically. And it's got three massive, 
well, effectively, they're greenhouses. And within that, they've got all different types of plants from all over the world. So it's if you're interested in green issues in conservation, in nature, it's absolutely a place to go. It's, it's a massive project. What, what would have been helpful to me as somebody with visual impairment is a, a text guide that I could have downloaded from their website to say, in this section, you'll find that. In this section, you'll find the other. And as I said, if they just said on the site, if you have a visual impairment, um, let us know in advance and we'll try and organise to you a specific guide and tool. Those would be for that kind of project. I mean, you wouldn't expect that everywhere you go. If equality is about access of opportunity and access of treatment, then I think taking these, which are really straightforward, simple measures, are not beyond the wit of any company to do it. How disappointed were you then, having been to the Eden Project and not received the additional information that you wanted? I mean, how disappointed were you with the visit overall? I, 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 was, I came away thinking this could have been better, and, I was, and that's why I emailed them. Now, some organisations say, if you give us notice, say a day, three days, whatever it might be, we can organise something for you. Do you think that's a reasonable adjustment as we... Yeah, I do. I do think that's reasonable. I do think it's reasonable to do that as long as you tell people about it. That's what the Eden Project said to me, if you'd have let us know. But I said to them, fine, but I didn't know that. Now, you're based in the southwest of England, and, and I was reading the other day that Southwest Trains have reorganised their provision for disabled passengers in that it's a 10-minute notice uh, position now from them, isn't it? Whereas the national scheme um, said that you had to give at least 24 hours notice, they are bringing that notice time down and down and down. And I think their aim is that actually in the end you'll be able to book it on the day. And I think obviously anything like that is good because disabled people sometimes can't plan their journeys massively in advance. It was a weakness of the system that you had to give them at least 24 hours notice. Um, and you may have to, for, for all kinds of reasons, travel urgently on an emergency. So if they're moving towards where you can give them half a day's notice, or if it's 10 minutes notice, that's great, providing, of course, that the assistance turns up. But I mean, I think over the 38 years I've been using disabled people assistance on trains, it is a heck of a lot better now than it was 30 years ago. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think my perception overall would accord with yours. But and that brings me on to this whole question of equality, because when I saw mm. a post on social media regarding the Eden Project, I thought, who better to speak to than a disability campaigner about equality than Alan mm-hmm. Davies? And it, it got me wondering, what is equality? What are we as disabled people entitled to expect? Equality for me is a society that doesn't place any barriers in the way of disabled people achieving what they want to achieve in the same way a non-disabled person can. So I don't mean by that that, that I should be given um, a f- f- facilities and the right to fly a plane um, as a commercial license, because there is no way you could ever do that. And even if they put the technology in, I wouldn't go in a plane which had a blind pilot. So, so <laughs> I, I think, I think that I think, and often that's the kind of thing we that was said historically by employers. You shouldn't have positive mm. action to give disabled people rights and employment because they could 
because a blind person could ask to be a taxi driver. I think that's ridiculous. No, no blind person would ever ask to do that. What I think it's about is saying, if a non-disabled, if a disabled person wants to um, wants to be a lawyer and believes that they want to and can do that, nobody should put any barriers in their way, either economically, either physically, either socially, either attitudinally. Nobody should turn to you or I and say, Tom Walker. Nobody should have ever turned to you and say, Tom Walker, you can never be a journalist. Because they we have, let me think, tell you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they have. But but they will have done that based on their assumptions and preconceptions as non-disabled people. They wouldn't have said to you, Tom, um, you want to be a journalist. You tell us how we are stopping you from doing that. What barriers are we putting in your way that's stopping you as somebody with BI from being a journalist? That's what I mean by equality. It should be about the organisations recognising that they place barriers in the way of disabled people, that that the barriers are not ours, because traditionally, historically, of course, society thinks that disabled people are, quote, disabled by their bodies, i.e. by what is, quote, wrong with us. But for me, I've always understood for many, many years that the main barriers to me doing something, to me being a counsellor, for example, mm. weren't my ability to be a counsellor, because as you know, Tom, I've got a gob on me. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm perfectly capable of advocating for myself and for others. I've known a bit about politics. So actually, the job of being a counsellor, what the barriers getting in my way were, were the local authority prepared to pay me reasonable travel expenses? Were they prepared to get information to me in an accessible format? And was the political party I wanted to represent also able to do that? And those were barriers that those organisations had the ability to change. And also, I do believe in positive action. I don't call it positive discrimination because I don't think that term works. For me, it's about saying, OK, if we've got if we've got a workforce and we believe we should have more disabled people represented in that workforce, then why can't we take positive action and say, if you reach all the criteria, you on the essential spec, you will be guaranteed an interview. And also, under the law now, you can actually employ disabled people for particular posts rather than non-disabled people, if you believe being a disabled person is an essential criteria in that job. When you talk to people about the um, Equality Act or the Disability Discrimination Act, particularly disabled people, they will always say, oh, reasonable adjustments, less favourable treatment. Do you think that those expressions still describe uh, what we need and what isn't happening? Or do you think we need to move on from less favourable treatment and reasonable adjustment towards a different understanding then? We have those phrases because those phrases are what we legally have. Those are the phrases when it comes down to you challenging an organisation and its policies and going to court or challenging directly. You have to use that language of saying, um, it's a reasonable adjustment. It's it's less favourable treatment. So so legally, you have to use that phraseology. For me, the question we are still living in a society that disables people with impairments. So so if you take you and me who have a visual impairment, we are not disabled by the fact we have those impairments. We are disabled. Yes, those impairments have an impact on our lives. Of course they do. But what disables us? What what what? means we have an unequal uh, position in society is the way society treats us. That has been the case for hundreds of years and probably will be for another hundreds, hundreds of years. So that doesn't change. 
So for me, it's not necessarily about the language you use. It's, it's remembering that that's our focus, is not changing ourselves as disabled people. Yeah, okay, some disabled people want to be cured. Of course they do, and they have the absolute right to do that. But for the vast majority of disabled people, what, what they want is the ability to do, they, they look at their non-disabled sisters and brothers and think, why can't I do that? It's getting everybody to understand that we are still in a situation where we need quite a lot of change. Um, yes, I accept nowadays that, that rather than I did a few years ago, that change has to be evolutionary and we have to achieve it by working with people and not shouting at them. I spent 20 years of my political life shouting at people, which, OK, perhaps we argued in those days we needed to. But I've certainly learned that now the best way of changing something is being nice to somebody and trying to work with them. So so with the Eden Project, I could have wrote a really stroppy email and gone straight to the local paper. Now, that may have had an effect, but actually what it would have done is definitely would have wound up the Eden Project, whereas by being reasonable in my email, okay, I was clear, but I was reasonable, I was fair, I wasn't rude. That's a much better way of trying to bring about change. When you look at the protests that took place before the Disability Discrimination Act became law in 1995. Mm. That did involve quite a lot of shouting. Do you think that yep. was just a case of we had to adopt those tactics then, but now we need to do things differently? I, I think that's right. I mean, I was involved in those actions. I was part of those. I took part in several uh, protests against um, children in need and telephone. Um, I was actually punched in the face at an anti-children in need demo. Um, and I, I was on the streets outside Telephone and I was part of a demonstration in, in 1993 where we um, blocked two buses in Manchester um, because a, a wheelchair user with us couldn't get on the bus. So I was part of those actions. I think where we were then, given the level of oppression disabled people experienced then, given the fact that nobody listened to us. And I was telling somebody the other day that back in 1983, the then Minister of disabled people who was somebody butcher i think actually got up in the house of commons when they were debating a disability rights bill and said the disabled don't need rights they just need goodwill mm. and that was only 38 years ago yeah. and, and 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 even when we were debating the superiority i remember people like ruth uh what was she she was the the chief executive of these directors i can't remember a second name but she used to turn mm. up on the today program regularly and she used to say all kinds of very <laughs> interesting things about how oh it would cost billions to give disabled people jobs we can't apply people be tax drivers all that kind of stuff yeah so the level of the level of resistance we were experiencing there and the level of the way disability was viewed i mean i remember going to a going to see a film and interesting it was cry freedom which as we know was about stephen Biko, it was about black mm. people's rights and there was a there was a promotional advert before that it was ronnie barker doing an advert for the Variety Club to raise money for disabled children. And the image in the, in, in, in the, the advert was of a, of a child in a wheelchair with a hologram of prison bars over it, giving that very stark message, she is imprisoned by her body. Mm. I mean, what is, so dis what is more disgraceful than that, saying basically that child's body was completely rubbish and so that was, I remember like 1988, the Paralympics, Cliff Morgan did mm. an hour long program. And all it was was him saying, oh, how brave these people are, how terrible it is these people have got. 
It wasn't about their sporting achievements. It wasn't about who won the 100 metres. My one regret is that I was too nasty to individual people. I, I reduced some people to tears, which I should never have done. Politics should never be about that. But in, ter- so, uh, but in terms of the radical nature of what we were saying, yes, I think direct action then was necessary. Most liberation struggles have had struggles for freedom, have had to use direct action at some point. Ideally, non-violent direct action with civil disobedience, which is stuff I prefer. Um, so, so I think I, I think it was necessary at the time. Do I think it's necessary now? What I would say is that um, the lives of many disabled people have improved because of the discrimination act, because of the Equalities Act, and because of lots of other changes. There are still lots of disabled people who experience extreme difficulty particularly people with difficulties, particularly people with mental health issues. So by no means is the world perfect. One area where there's still a long way to go is in um, employment. And 25 years, 26 years, in fact, after the uh, Disability Discrimination Act, disabled people are still underrepresented in many workplaces. Why do you think that is and what needs to be done? I think for me, a lot of it goes back to the barriers I was talking about, particularly attitudinal barriers about employers um, having a stereotype perhaps in their minds about what a disabled person can or cannot do. I mean, I remember back in the late 80s going for an interview for a social work job and I was being interviewed for an hour. They spent five minutes talking to me about my ability to be a social worker and 55 minutes about how I was going to actually get from A to B. And the onus was very much on me to give them the answers, rather than what they should have done. He said, look, we pay all our sighted drivers, a, a people who drive who are sighted, we pay them a mileage allowance, so we will put, meet your taxi costs. And then the, the conversation would have lasted 20 seconds. So, so it's about, I think, perception. It's about, I think, stereotypes. It's about, it's about I think, in some cases, employers thinking, oh, this is going to be too much work. Um, this is going to take too much effort and it's going to cost too much. Because despite all of the publicity, a lot of employers still don't know about access to work. Um, and as you and I know as disabled people, getting access to work sometimes might not be the easiest thing on earth. Um, there, are, there are challenges with using access to work, uh, if for no other reason than the rules change quite regularly. So you're never quite sure what you can apply for and what you can't. Well, one of the things I've discovered or re-remembered maybe is that since I've been doing these podcasts in particular but also with my work elsewhere it's just how many amazingly talented visually impaired people there are absolutely absolutely astonishing things is that your experience as well oh completely yeah I mean absolutely I mean people with visual impairment disabled people yeah there is such a pool of talent and knowledge out there and experience out there. I mean, when I when I sit talking and listening to other disabled people and other people who are disabled about what they've done and what they've achieved, I think, oh, and after time, I sit thinking, flipping out, you've done a lot more than me. Do you know one thing that I do notice, though, and again, particularly probably among visually impaired people, is that we are often our own worst critics. You know, if if I want to be criticised by anybody, all I need to do is speak to another vis- uh, visually impaired person <laughs> and they'll do it for me quite happily. Do you think sometimes we don't support each other enough? I don't know, to be honest, Tom. I mean, I, I mean because I'm a fairly thick-skinned, gobby individual, <laughs> I'm used to... I'm used to getting brick bats, whether I whether it's because I have a visual impairment or not. 
I think what, what can be an issue sometimes amongst disabled people is because of the way society views disabled people, we are sometimes played off against each other. Mm. I think there is such a thing as a hierarchy of impairment, I would call it. So I think we are, I think even within disabled people, I mean, and you know, and I know, fascinatingly, when we went to Worcester, there was there was a difference between the way partially sighted people viewed themselves and totally blind people viewed themselves. Yeah. Um, you'll remember in Worcester, the most derogatory word you could use to describe anybody was blind. Mm. Because blind was perceived to be the stereotype they'd all grown up with of being incapable, of being unable. And, and the problem was is that everybody in Worcester, because of the support we got, had a really good chance of doing things. Yet the stereotype was the blind people. So that was the most. So even in Worcester, there was a hierarchy between the parties. Children, and young people were partially sighted, and those who were totally blind, very definitely. Looking to the future, then you know, imagine we're around for the next forty years, and you never know. That is just about possible. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's just about possible. We touch wood when we say it. Um, yeah. What will disabled people's lives be like in? I'm trying to work it out. Twenty sixty something or other. Yeah, two two years before my hundredth birthday. So yeah, because there's only there's only we're, we're actually the same age. Aren't we were, I think we're both fifty seven. I think you're just six months younger than me. I think. Yeah. Um, so I would hope that the 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 slow progress to to greater equality, greater social justice. I would hope it will continue. Um, there will be peaks and troughs. I dare say, in the next few years, there will be things that happen in social policy terms that are a challenge for disabled people as the impact of the, the pandemic um, hits home economically. So I don't see the next few years as being particularly rosy, shall we say. Alan, it's been fantastic to catch up with you. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Yeah, and we should do this more often. And to have, well, to have an extended conversation with you is probably something we haven't done for about 10 years. So uh, Absolutely, yeah. Long yeah, overdue. Yeah. And we were, we were probably in a pub and it was very alcoholic, I <laughs> Alan, thanks very much indeed. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. OK, so this is the part you've all been waiting for. Which vow track have I chosen to end this podcast? Well, we're in October now, so it must be nearly wintertime.